All right, hello, LinkedIn and YouTube. Thank you so much for joining us live. We're going to talk about getting smarter about visual information with Alberto Cairo. I'm really looking forward to the session. And again, thank you so much for joining us. Now, Alberto is the night chair at University of Miami. He's the author of How Charts Lie, which is his recent book. He's authored other books, including The Truthful Art. Um, I'll bring him into the session in just about a minute. But for those that have tuned in, I do have a question, and this is all Alberto's idea. And the question is, tell us what is your favorite type of chart? Or you know, what's the most common chart that you tend to use? I'm just gonna go ahead and jump into LinkedIn, make sure that the session is working fine. All right, here we go. And I'm going to bring in Alberto. Hello. Hi, hey Kate, good to see you, Hi. how are you? Good, good, thank you so much for joining the session today. Mm -hmm. uh, well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's uh, actually a break, a, a break from my boring day of Zoom meetings back to back from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. So I really appreciate the opportunity to have a nice conversation. Great, great. Well, this is kind of like a Zoom meeting, except it's live and anybody else can join. And, uh, but, join it's, it's, but it's a fun, it's a fun Zoom meeting, right? Yes, hopefully. Let's make this a fun Zoom meeting. Um, all right, let's get started. For those who don't know Alberto, one thing I'll, I'll, I'll say before you know I allow you to introduce yourself is I was looking for a list of data visualization experts and your name came up on every single list. And I looked at probably 20 to 30 or even more you know, sources. So mm -hmm. you're a huge name in data visualization and that's, that's really where my passion lies. So I had to reach out to you and I'm so glad that we're gonna have this discussion today. But for those who are not familiar with you, can you just provide a you know a, a brief background? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, well, I, I, right now I am a professor at the University of Miami, where I teach data visualization, but also um, explanation graphics, so infographics. Infographics, in the sense, by the way, not in the in the way that the word is used in the world of business analytics or marketing, but in the sense of how that word is used in news media, which is an infographic is a visual explanation of something that has happened. So if you see, for example, a visual reconstruction of an accident or a car accident or a plane accident or something, and you see an illustration that, or, or a cutaway of an object that explains how the object function, we call, those, we call those things infographics. So I'm also a professor of infographics. I also teach how to model in 3D and do illustrations and things like that. But my main focus right now is in data visualization. I am a journalist by training. I, I worked in, in news organizations in Spain, my country of origin, uh, the United States and also Brazil for many years. I've also been a professor at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. That was in between 2005 and 2009. And I know I, I've done many things, I've worn many hats. So um, I am also a consultant. So I do consulting, I have consulting gigs with companies and governmental organizations, helping them improve their data visualization efforts. I've written several books, as you said. Yeah, I also like graphics. I, I like anything that has to do with visual communication. And well, not only visual communication, with communication in general, because I, mm -hmm. I, I am a believer not just in, in visualization per se. I'm, a, I'm also a writer. So I also, uh, I, I consider myself, I guess that the way that, that I would put my, that I will explain what I do with the core of my work is not really data visualization. Data visualization is just the conduit. It's, the, it's one of the main tools that I use and that I teach. Um, mm -hmm. But I consider myself a translator. So someone who gets complexity, things that are difficult to understand, 
scientific research, right? That is extremely complex, that uses a lot of jargon. Right. And I am able to translate it either verbally or visually into something that a non-expert audience can understand. That's that's mm -hmm. the core of what I do. That's the way where I what I see myself. Okay, yeah, absolutely. And I think there's just such a great need right now for, for a translator. Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm, what's yeah. going on. Yeah, of course. Yeah, with everything that is going on, both with the with the pandemic and the and the, 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 the riots, the underlying reasons for all the protests that we are witnessing these days i think that there's an, an enormous need to for people who can who can translate knowledge put knowledge uh, on the hands of the people who can use it and that's i think that's i think that, that that's the core of what i do yeah absolutely especially when um when we you know when discussions just started about covid-19 and everybody started putting out these data visualizations that are potentially showing that either the world is ending or everything is fine and the general public is not, I think, as well versed in data literacy. And mm -hmm, literacy. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, we 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 saw plenty of dubious takes and charts at the beginning of the pandemic from people who didn't have any sort of expertise mm -hmm. in epidemiology or, or biostatistics, and that drove me a little bit crazy because I, I would never dare doing that myself, like getting a bunch of data and just analyze it on my own and then just put out publish my own taste just, i mean i lack expertise i i know very little about epidemiology or biostatistics so i would not dare uh, unless that i'm collaborating with people who have expertise in those areas i would never dare putting anything out but yeah we we, we saw a lot of that a lot of like our hot takes from people who came from engineering or from astrophysics <laughs> or just, or just yeah. learn data visualization last month or just learn data visualization last month as i said before data visualization is a craft it's a tool that you can use to translate something else uh, but that's something else you need to have um sort of like the knowledge domain expertise in order to master it and being able to explain it and, and we lack that right we need to collaborate with those who do yeah, absolutely so before i go on to the next question i just want to do a check-in with the audience so we've had Evans say line charts, we got bar charts, mm. bar charts, heat map, let's see, interactive chart, line charts, a lot of different options here, Sankey charts. Um, Alberto, what's your favorite chart? I mean that varies depending on the depending on the year. I like them all depending on the depending on the context. Um, you got a bar chart on here, so I know, but I, I didn't design the cover. That's, oh, that's okay. yeah. That but I love the cover though. I think that the, the design of the cover is very smart, extremely smart. Yeah. But that were uh, it was designed by the great designers at WW Norton, my publisher. Um, but the book contains plenty of scatter plots. I like this. I, I love scatter plots. I think that the scatter plots are are not just useful but they are so beautiful they are usually are so intricate so intriguing i don't know there's something about the scatterplot that i really like both in terms of information but also and, and, and utility how useful they are but also in terms of visual appeal i'm a huge fan of histograms i think that histograms is or histograms or other graphics that display distributions yeah such as box plots or uh, violin charts or uh, even strip plots right a variation of the dot plot Right, they are under underutilized, and we should yeah. use them more. We should use them more, and I'm a fan of those graphics. I'm also a fan of strange graphics. So there's a great website uh, called uh, Shino Graphics. I don't know if you know about Shino that. Graphics? Shino, yes, I can type it in the in the chat. So Google it up. Shino right. Graphics, graphics by Martin Lambrecht. Martin 
Lambrecht. Okay. Right, so you can Google both Chinographics and Martin Lambrecht. And Martin is a, is a friend of mine. He's a visualization designer, amazing visualization designer based in Belgium. And he has put together this website called Chinographics. Not, okay. It's plural, Chinographics. I wrote really wrong in there. Uh, in which he collects strange charts. So novel, you know, innovative, innovative ways of displaying data, you know, new, there, there you go, that's the website. And it has the weirdest charts you've ever seen, right? Um, sometimes when I, when I point this resource to people and the activists, sometimes people are shocked <laughs> that I recommend this website saying, but this is crazy. Nobody's going to understand these graphics. They are so strange. They're breaking all the rules, man. They are breaking all the rules. Well, not necessarily. Many of these follow the rules of the grammar of visualization. It's only that they look unusual. And yeah. I usually I usually reply to that saying, you know, any type of visualization was unusual at mm. some point in history. The bar chart was unusual the first time that it was used in the 18th century, right? Same yeah. with the line chart. The line chart was not use not usual not, not common when it was first used we just grow used to using them so some of these very strange graphics they look very strange today but maybe five or ten years from now they will be part of the of the common vocabulary that we are all used i absolutely love this website it's, it's hard to stop scrolling there's so i know it has so many so many it has tons of them yeah all right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, as I'm building my data visualization course, I'm actually going to go in there and check some stuff out for, mm -hmm. for inspiration. Thank you. Um, all right, Alberto, you've written a couple of books, all sort of on the data visualization or, you know, pertaining to visualizing data or communicating. What is your motivation for writing the books? Well, because I like visuals and I would like everyone to be able to design visuals. I think that one of the problems that we face in, in the communities that use visualizations on a regular basis, the visualization community, business analytics, data science, statistics, is that we tend to focus a little bit too much on the new flashy thing, right? The new technology, the new coding language, the new tool, whatever. And that's wonderful. I think that that's great. We should keep inventing you know, new tools and new coding languages. However, that's not what I'm most interested in. What I'm most interested in is bringing everybody else up to speed, right? I, I, I think that what I can help the most with is to teach how to use graphics to people who never use graphics, right? The common, the regular public, normal, regular people, right? And, and that's, if you read my books, you will notice that I try to, I try to write in a very casual style, you know, injecting here and there are some silly jokes, etc., to make the, the books a little bit more appealing and easier to read. And that's because that's their aim. Their aim, their aim is to be consumed by a public who doesn't necessarily have expertise in all these areas, but could develop that expertise, right? So mm -hmm. I think my motivation is that it's just because I want to, I want everybody to take advantage of visualization the same way that we all use writing and speaking, we all use language to communicate. Why shouldn't we all learn how to design a map or how to design a graph or how to design a chart? Because writing and speaking are complementary to charts right. and charts are complementary to writing and speaking. So why shouldn't we learn both things, right? In order to became, become better communicators. So that's the main, the main aim. Yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, I, I am reading your, I guess your latest book, right? The How Charts Lie is your, your most mm -hmm. recent. That's the latest. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it is, it is very easy to read and it's written in a very casual tone where you're actually, you're learning by just reading through stories. And that's, I think that's been really effective. So you're, would you say your target audience has been just the general public? 
Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, my dad. Right, my dad. My dad is a my dad is a is a medical doctor. He's not a designer. He's not a business analytics person. He's a, so I, you know, keep my dad in mind or my mom. My mom is a is a nurse, a retired nurse. Same thing, right? People who have a, a, a certain level of education, so they can read a, a book that is slightly technical, not extremely technical, but it has some technicalities to it. But anyone who is interested in this type of book and has a, a at a minimum a high school education level if you have a high school education level you can read this book it's not it's not complicated sorry you were saying i interrupted yeah, you your, your mom and dad read the book oh yeah they did well they they can't because they speak spanish my dad oh. could, yeah my dad could read a little bit because he understands english but my mom doesn't understand a word of english so um, uh, uh, until the book is translated to spanish at some point mm -hmm. if it ever, ever is we'll see uh, she will not be able to read it, but she can see the pictures. She's <laughs> good. Uh, we have a comment here from Jan saying, "I love the book. It is great. The world needed it so badly." So thank you. That's very kind. Thank you, Jan. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think that we need not not specifically this book, but more books again, and more people who again translators who see themselves as translators, translators whose main aim is not to sell things products mm -hmm. or to do marketing all those are very worthy professions but that's not the kind of communicator that i have in mind and that i want to educate i would like to help educate people who have sort of like an ethical stance based on i am a translator i am a mediator between complexity and the public and my main aim is not to sell a product is not to make money my main goal is to learning stuff seeing that that stuff is super cool super interesting yeah. And then you feel compelled to tell that to other people mm -hmm. in, in a way. I, and when looking back at my career, I, I have done this many, many times. I have many interests, right? Tons of not only data visualization. I, I like writing, reading about, you know, I, I read a lot about philosophy, for instance. Actually, the book that I'm working on at the moment is probably going to be a little bit more philosophical because I will get into the literature of moral reasoning formally, the philosophy of moral reasoning, which is something that I have been reading for more than 20 years. There's so much cool stuff in that area that is waiting to be translated somehow, because most of the books that are happening written in this area are pretty technical. They're written by philosophers for philosophers. Mm. So why don't we get all that? We translate it into a language that people can understand, and then we try to connect it to visualization somehow. I usually say that my, I, I write my books in a way that I use visualization as an excuse to write about something else. <laughs> so How Chats Lie is really not a book about How Chats Lie. It's a book about reasoning about numbers. That's what How Chats Lie is, right? Mm -hmm. The same way that The Truthful Art, my previous book, it's sold as a book about data visualization, but it's in reality, the way that I wrote it, it's a book about epistemology. That's what it is. So I use visualization as an excuse to write about about other things that that interest me. And and I bought the book because it was about data visualization. Just that's why I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it is about data visualization, but the way that I wrote it is like I really want to write about this stuff. I don't have you know I'm not an expert in all these areas. So let me see whether I can translate all this and connect it to visualization somehow. And fortunately, up to this point, that has been possible. The same way that I will be able to connect moral philosophy and moral reasoning to data visualization in the in the next absolutely that is absolutely possible and many of the things that you read in treaties in philosophy treaties about moral philosophy it's completely applicable to the world of data visualization to the way that we make decisions 
The, the, the next book is going to be about how to make justified and ethical decisions whenever we, we make a visualization. And what, when is that coming out? Oh, they, <laughs> 2021? Let's see. In theory, I mean, I have a contract already and I have a publisher already, so it's a done deal. It's going to happen. You just have to uh, do it. <laughs> oh, no, it's not, that's not a problem. I mean, I, it usually doesn't take me that long to write a book. It's probably going to take me four or five months, something like that. The challenge is coronavirus. Coronavirus has frozen basically the operations of all publishers. So originally the book was scheduled to be published in the fall of 2021, okay. but probably is going to be pushed to the spring of 2022. But, you know, I am already giving public talks about the ideas that I'm sort of like developing little by little that will end up in the book. That's how I wrote How Chats Lie. How Chats Lie was preceded by a talk tour that I, I, I called it a tour, but it's like a talk, it was a talk tour. I, I gave, I gave a, like 30 or 40 talks in, in like 10, 15 different countries and tons of different cities for over two years in which I used the talk to test the ideas that ended up going into how chat slide. So mm -hmm. I have begun already doing that with the next book. So if you find any of my latest, my latest talks, I gave the other, the other day I gave one um, I don't remember what it was. I think that it was the data visualization group in Lisbon, in Portugal, although I presented in English, um, and they are going to put it online. So if you watch that talk, you sort of see the embryonary, the preliminary ideas that I'm developing right now that will end up being in the, in the next Okay, part. very interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, so Alberto, we have several comments and questions coming in here. I'm going to start mm -hmm. with Donna's question. I'm going to go ahead and put that into the screen. All right. So she says, I won't name the organization, but I worked somewhere once where tricks and manipulations in visualization were purposely used mm -hmm. in order to tell the story we wanted or needed to tell. It was done mm -hmm. instantly and not necessarily to be misleading or deliberately lying. Mm -hmm. Do you think there is a place for this or if visualization should always be in its raw state, allowing the reader to draw their own conclusions from what is presented? Okay, so let me unpack this. If you can keep it on screen. Can you keep it on screen so I can see it? Yeah, that's great. Because uh, there's a lot to unpack here. All right, so when talking about moral reasoning, there are several things that you can focus on. Some schools of philosophy uh, focus on the consequences of our actions. Some schools of philosophy focus on what precedes what we do, right? The ontology, for example, right? Um, some schools focus on the knowledge that we have about the actions that we are about to take. Some schools focus on how virtuous we are as people, making, uh, doing actions and so on and so forth. All this is relevant to these, uh, to these questions somehow. So let me begin with the second part of your question, in which you say that if, is, should visualization be, always be in its raw state, allowing the reader to draw their own conclusions from what it is presented? And the answer is no, not always. Um, it depends on what the purpose of the visualization is. If the purpose, of the, the purpose of the visualization is exploratory, you just want to put the data out. You know, Im imagine, for example, the Johns Hopkins dashboard that everybody's visiting to track coronavirus or our world in data that creates interactive data visualizations to track the coronavirus, right? There is no story layer overlaid on those graphics. It's just, here's the data, here's a line chart, just draw your own conclusions. Those graphics are exploratory in nature. But very often, you need to explain and reinforce what it is that the graphic is showing. You need to emphasize what the main takeaways of the graphic are, right? You need to overlay an annotation layer, right? You need to put words onto the graphic, or you need to frame a 
particular part of the graphic so people will not miss it or you need to repeat what the graphic is actually actually showing and and this goes to your um to the first part of your question and all my prior discussion about consequences and the ontology and all that stuff right it all depends on what your intentions are so if you're well intentioned and you put as much effort as possible into telling a truthful story through your graphic then you're doing the right thing you can make a mistake or not right but if you try not to make mistakes if you try to be as rigorous as possible uh, in finding the stories that a graphic tells and then telling those stories and emphasizing them you're doing the right thing but you can do a better thing which is to become a better thinker in order to avoid mistakes and that's where for example collaborating with ex experts come in right collaborating with people who know much more than you do uh, about the data that you're visualizing who can help you uh, uh, help you uh, uh, help you understand or spot the possible mistakes that you may be making with the best of intentions right in charge as i say that probably 90% of the examples that appear in the book in how chats lie i don't think that they were, they were created with the intention of lying to anybody they were just a product of someone who was producing a graphic really quickly or in a sloppy manner and they don't thinking too much about the graphic they just visualize the data we all make mistakes but we should all try to avoid making those mistakes now and now let's go to the beginning of your of your questions i'm going backwards from the end to the very beginning tricks and manipulations so man tricks and manipulations no that's completely unacceptable as i said before if a graphic doesn't say or a, or a data set a data set that is visualized doesn't say what you want it to say mm -hmm. you cannot make it say what you want it to say you just need to say what the data is saying that's what you need to do your best interpretation so the way all right so let me rephrase that because with these words i may be giving the impression that data is subjective for some reason that is not true what matters is the interpretation of the data so what you need to convey through a graphic is your most honest rigorous interpretation of the data not the interpretation of the data that is better for your purposes yeah. that is the difference that is the key difference so yeah, it's yeah. a matter a matter of intentions right that's the deontological part but it is also a matter of consequences because putting out information that is manipulated that has dire negative consequences on other people right so therefore you need to think about that as well and and that is a tactic that is used by companies I mean, by companies by politicians by, by everybody and anybody again there's a difference between making a mis making a mistake and lying on purpose there's an ethical difference one thing is worse than the other obviously right but if we could try to avoid both right that that's great we, we you know we will work, we will live in a better world if we all try to avoid both lying on purpose, on purpose and then trying to make try to, trying to avoid mistakes and i have made I've done made many mistakes myself in the past right and i try to correct them well that's the other thing if you make a mistake correct it right and put it visibly in the same place and with the same prominence where you put your mistake that's another practice that we should all adopt a little bit more it's painful but you know our responsibility is towards people that's that to, towards other people to the uh, to the well-being of other people that's what really matters yeah absolutely i think it all comes down to intention right it is intention but it is also consequences because as you, you know the old saying right the road to hell is paved with good intentions so it's not just intentions when thinking about ethics we need to think about the intentions 
and we need to think about the context where, where actions are taken and also we need to think about the possible consequences of our actions those things are related to each other you cannot detach them yeah the, the worst the worst you know the worst people in history right the people who damage societies and people the most in many cases were perfectly well-intentioned in their own lives right they were well-intentioned i'm reading right now for example completely related to um data visualization i'm reading a lot for personal interests about the origins of christianity right all the debates that were in the fifth century sixth century about different heresies and different schools of christianity those people killed each other killed each other right and prosecute each other based on topics as to whether god and christ have the same nature or two different natures and they killed each other because of that with the best of intentions you're so wrong i need to persuade you and if i cannot persuade you you are damaging society therefore you must be killed they took those actions with the best of intentions right so you yeah. need to also think about the consequences of actions not just the intentions yes absolutely and um ashen says here that you're Layers unpacked and explained beautifully. So thank you. Thanks, Ocean. Um, all right, let's talk about your personal approach for visualizing data. Now I know you've designed so many charts and graphs. Oh, yeah. I know because you know I've seen your books, but I'm sure you've done a lot for your university and other places. Mm -hmm. So what is your approach, and what tools do you prefer to use? All right, so. My approach is that I, I usually tell people that visualization is always the product of a collaboration. So my work usually begins when the data is already has already been analyzed and understood. So once we know what a data set contains, the main insights that may a data set may reveal, right? That's where I come in. I don't come in into the exploratory phase or analytical phase. I'm the communications person. So I take the data and then I transform it into graphics, right? Into maps and charts, etc. And sometimes I connect them to each other to form narratives. I, I actually prefer the word narrative to the word story. I produce narratives, like narrative structures that may help people understand the data better. Now, so I, I sort of like don't take many of the steps that lead to the visualization for communication phase, such as cleaning up the data, wrangling the data, exploring the data. That I usually I usually don't do. Mm -hmm. I collaborate with experts. So for whatever I'm visualizing, right, regardless of the topic, I always try to rely on people who know about the topic that I'm visualizing. So I, the other day, yesterday actually, I was working on tons of graphics about uh, how the coronavirus is, um, coronavirus cases are increasing in several countries in Latin America. Yeah, we are the, a group of university researchers over here are collecting data about Mexico, Brazil, etc. Now I visualize their data. I collaborated with public health experts, right? I don't have any sort of expertise again in epidemiology, therefore I need to collaborate with them. So mm -hmm. once the data is clean, ready to visualize, it is clear what the message needs to be, etc. I do several things. So for example, I choose encodings. I prefer by encodings, I mean the ways to represent the data. The way that I think about visualization is not in terms of types of graphics. So I don't choose, oh, I'm going to use a bar graph, or I'm going to use a line chart, or I'm going to use a scatter plot. Although I will usually end up using those types of graphic forms, right? The choices that I, ma are, I, make, are, are, I make are usually not based on choosing the graphic itself. 
but on choosing the encodings. What is it that I'm going to use to represent the data? Is it going to be length, height, position, color, etc., etc.? That is called the grammar of graphics, right? There's a whole book title like that that describes all this methodology, right? The grammar of graphics. So what, is, what symbols, what arrangements, what encodings I'm going to use to represent the data? I make choices in terms of color, in terms of fonts, in terms of layout, in terms of structure, always, thinking about purpose. What is this graphic for? What is it intended to communicate? Because that purpose will guide your decisions on everything in, in terms of what to emphasize, what to sort of like downplay a little bit because it is secondary. The way that you structure a narrative also depends on the purpose so that the, uh, it depends both on the nature of the data, but also it depends on the purpose of the story that you are telling or the narrative that you're telling. And simultaneously, I think about the words that I'm going to put in the graphic. So I, I say simultaneously, I emphasize this, because what I have observed in many cases with people who design visualizations to communicate ideas is that they first design the graphics, and then once they have finished with the graphics, they think about what words they need to put on the graphics, the titles, the intros, the annotations. Yeah. Don't do it that way. You need to think simultaneously. So I, I, I go back and forth between writing a title, improving the design. Then I write the intro, then I add something to the design. So because I try to integrate organically, as organically as possible, at least what we call in visualization the annotation layer of the graphic, and the visuals of that graphic themselves, right? They need to integrate naturally and they need to reinforce each other. And you will only achieve that if you write the text at the same time or you jump back and forth between the graphic and the and the words. I sometimes I sometimes begin by writing the words because by writing sort of like a, a written description of what you want to say, that gives you the backbone of the story already, right? The structure, one, two, three, four, five, about the topics that you want to that you want to talk about in your graphic. Yeah, somebody actually said that before you start visualizing, um, submit your tweet first. So this is a Twitter reference. What is the, eleva what is the elevator speech, right? I, I, one of the strategies, by the way, that I teach my students to structure stories, right, or narratives, as I prefer to call them, is to say, forget about graphics. Now, don't think about graphics. Just verbalize what it is that you want to say. Write a paragraph explaining what it is that you want to convey. Then find the natural breaks in that paragraph and those are going to become the titles of each one of the graphics that you're going to have in your in your in your story, and then find the charts that will go with the, each one of those pieces of a paragraph. I have an example in another book about um, a, a demographic patterns in Brazil, right? Um, and the story was that Brazil's the population of Brazil grew quite a lot in in in, bet in between a couple of years, in 10 years, but the fertility rate of Brazil, the number of children per woman is way below what people were expecting. And if a country has a, 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 a fertility rate so low, the population of that country will become, will start shrinking and it will become older. And then Brazil needs to prepare itself for that because the population is going to become older and they have social security and retirement and stuff. So they need to prepare themselves. That's a paragraph. Right, I have just written the paragraph. Then you split it up and then you find the graphics that match each one of the portions of that paragraph. So the writing gives you the mental structure that can help you to create the graphic structure later on. Yeah, that's actually a really good approach. I, I personally haven't thought about it that way. I just tried to start with a title before mm -hmm. I designed the visualization. But that, is, that is dangerous, beginning just with a title because a title is like, a title is like, when you only show the average of a distribution that is very skewed, 
right? If you have a distribution that is very skewed, you should never just report the average because the average is going to be skewed by right. the fact that you have outliers in the distribution. A title is usually a very poor, <coughs> sorry, it's a very poor um, summary of the complexity of the graphic. So the title itself, I would recommend begin with the title, the introductions, for example, to each mm -hmm. one of the portions. So you can get a sense of, you know, not only the main takeaway, which is what the title should represent, but also the caveats, the exceptions, the sort of like forking path that your narrative can take and so on and so forth. So write a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, and I see we have some comments here. So Avinash says, wow, did not think of it that way. And it's by the way, I forgot to mention this idea of the paragraph and splitting it up. That's not my idea. 99% of things that I say are not my ideas, and I try to credit people for, for their ideas. I, I stole shamelessly this idea from a friend of mine. His name is uh, Juan Velasco. Uh, he used to be the art director uh, at National Geographic magazine. Right? He was one of the people who created those beautiful graphics that National Geographic publishes. And he, he presented this idea once in a talk that I attended and said, you know, Juan, I'm going to steal this idea <laughs> because it's so great. It's such a great idea. I have another friend, by the way, Javier Saracina, who is currently the graphics director at USA Today, yeah. who also uses the same approach. Both of them talk about these. Quite it's a, a really good approach. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, we've got another question here. Cyan. So which oh, the tools. Yeah, yeah, the tool. Yeah, I forgot to actually this connects to your other question, Katie. The tools. All right. So um Power BI Tableau, whatever gets the job done. That's my approach to tools. Whatever gets the job done. If Power BI works for you, Power BI is a wonderful tool. If Tableau works for you, Tableau is great. If uh, Click View works for you, perfect. If it's data, which is I have I'm collaborating with the researchers right now who use data. If that works for you, just use that. Myself, mm -hmm. I just use tools that I find comfortable working with for some reason. Sometimes the adoption of tools on your part is a matter of emotional appeal of the tools for some reason. I happen to like, for example, Adobe Illustrator, which is a design tool. I love it. I think that it's super flexible. I have been using it for more than 20 years. I use it for almost anything. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I like the uh, I like R the letter R as a programming language. I use R quite a bit. Which but um, I do you use? Sorry? Um? Which visualization libraries do you use? Oh, ggplot. I use ggplot. I use all the all the. I don't use base R. Base R is scary. No, I, I use the tidyverse. The tidyverse makes R much more much more useful and much more appealing. Also, much more visually appealing and more much more logical. I would say the tidyverse in terms of programming. But no, you know, I have friends who use Python and there is this silly discussion, oh, Python is better or R is better. There's no better, whatever. It reminds me when I began my career 20, 25, almost 25 years ago, there was this stupid discussion about whether Adobe Illustrator is better than another tool that existed at the time called Macromedia Freehand. Oh, Freehand is better. Oh, or Illustrator is better. There's no better. What really matters is the results. If you get the results that you want, there's a, the, I mean, to software tools are like, are like pencils or pens. This is like, it, I mean, you, you may like it more. You may like, I, like, I happen to like the feel of these pens. So I yeah. always buy these pens, but just because my hands for some reason feel more comfortable using this type of pen. But that doesn't mean that it is better. Things are never better or worse in the abstract. They're better or worse for you. For the, 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 well, in the world of 3D modeling, it's the same thing. 
there are you know cinema 4d fans 3d studio max fans maya fans i happen i happen to use maya for my 3d modeling but i cannot claim that maya is better or worse than other tools because i know that if, if i if i had learned you know cinema 4d probably i would prefer cinema 4d so mm -hmm. whatever suits you better whatever suits you better that's the answer Absolutely. I think uh, I, I share a similar view. It, and I think it also depends on which tool you started using first. Because Yeah, that biases you. Yeah, that biases you a lot because you, you get comfortable with it and you learn how to do everything with it. And then you try. And uh, you tend to go where you're comfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are, we are you know, creatures of custom. We get accustomed to things and, and we, we stick to them. Yeah. So, um, question on the R Have you ever used the SKS package? No. SDS? SQ, SQS. I'm going to put it in the comments. It is so cool. Actually, I'll link. I have a, a very short YouTube video I made. So. By the way, when I say that I use R, I don't mean that I'm actually an R coder. I use it for very basic things. I mean, my. Oh, my, my learning R, but there's yeah, so like five, 10 lines of code. That's about what I use for to create my graphics. No, so this package basically lets you do um, the same thing that Tableau and Click and Power BI let you do. Oh, it's oh cool. I want to see it. Uh -huh. yeah. I'm going to put the link in the comments here so people can check it out. It's really cool. I just love sharing it. I have mm -hmm. no connection with this package. Just just like to share this um, for those mm -hmm. that are watching our. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so let's get into what are some ways data visualization can be deceiving? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> just one. That's 1,000 pages, Kate. <laughs> All right, so the short answer is that visualization is always deceiving if you don't know how to read it. If it is either badly designed, it will be deceiving, obviously. But even if it is well designed, if you don't know how to read it, if you don't know what you're looking at, it will be deceiving. And that's the main message of How Chats Live. Right? So How Chats Live is really not about How Chats Live. It's about how you can make yourself a little bit more educated. So graphics will not lie to you unintentionally, right? So that's the short answer. The long answer is that there are many things that, that can lie to us. One of the main problems I think that we face as a society right now is that we are, we are becoming increasingly distracted and, and we are speeding up in the way that we consume, that we consume information. And again, as, as every criticism that I make, I am criticizing myself because I have found myself unconsciously, you know, sc scrolling through Twitter very quickly, not paying much attention to what I'm looking at. Yeah. Um, I trained myself not to do that. So I started, I started getting very, very deeply into, into the literature of cognitive biases in relationship to meditation, both of them. And I started becoming a little bit more mindful. It's like observing myself operating in the world. Like if you see yourself as a different person and you observe your own behavior uh, out there, it sounds really weird when you verbalize it, but if, if any yeah. of you practice mindful meditation, you know what I'm talking about. So I started doing that. You know, I started slowing myself down because I have always been a reader. And one of the things that I, that I, a reader of books, by the way, not a reader of um, short pieces of information. What I started is to discipline myself, discipline myself to become more attentive to everything that surrounded me and including, you know, things that we see in news media and social media. And I started disciplining myself to, for example, 
devote every day at least one or two hours to deep reading about anything. So it could be about anything. I just read books, about, um, physical books, by the way, not, not books on screen, because I tend to concentrate much better. If you could see my desk right now, there are like a pile, three piles of books there that I'm, I'm reading, but going back and forth one on the other every day, just one hour, two hours. This morning, for example, I was fortunate enough, I, have, I had almost three hours for reading. So I spent three hours, no phone, That's no nice. phone, no computer, just three hours reading books about, again, as I said before, the history of Christianity in the fifth century, which okay. is super, super fascinating. Anyway, so I took a lot of notes, etc. So what matters the most is not the topic that you read about. What matters the most is the practice of deep concentration, which is a deep concentration of to what is happening in front of you and to what is happening over here, inside here. And that's the key thing to becoming, what the key sort of like the foundation to become a better chart reader or a better person in the world, so to speak. But, you know, I, as I said before, I usually use charts as an excuse to write about something else, right? So it's like become more attentive because when you become more attentive, for some reason, you also become kinder because mm. you start sort of like paying attention to other people and seeing the attitudes in other people that you also see in yourself. So if you're understanding with yourself, you also be, you start becoming understanding towards other people, right? Mindfulness is always related to kindness, kindness to, uh, towards other people. So become more becoming more attentive, that's the core foundation. Because if not, graphics will always lie to you. You need to read them, right? One of the things that I say explicitly how chats lie is that um, a graphic will always lie to you if you don't read it. Graphics are charts are not meant to be seen. They are meant to be read, right? Yeah. You need to read them. They are text. They are not images that you can just casually look at. Then after that, after you paid attention to the chart, I described several techniques that I used to read charts myself. Right? Pay attention to the axis, take a look at the source of the graphic, let's take a look at whether things are being distorted and so on and so forth. Right, But those are very easy to understand. The hardest part actually is the mindfulness, is the attention, is the, is the forcing ourselves to pay, my more, to pay more attention to what we are looking at. That's the hardest part of it. But it's the core, it's the core, of, oh, the core of, the, of the book, I would say. I begin with that, as you know, and I also end with that. The ending of the book, the conclusion of the book, actually anticipates some of the things that I'm going to put in the next book, right? But I also talk a little bit about all these, you know, cognitive biases and ideological biases and also Mindfulness, I also mentioned it explicitly, I think, uh, at the ending of the book. Um, question, you, you mentioned you read a lot and you mentioned deep thinking. Have you happened to read Deep Work by Cal Newport? No, but I'm familiar with the, I'm familiar with the title. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think he has in that book, that's why I thought. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, it sounds, I mean, there, as I said before, everything that I'm saying is not particularly original. It's like, it's, I just, all right, so I said, I, I, I said before, I am a translator, and that's true, but I'm also an amalgamator. An amalgamator in the sense that I, I draw ideas from everywhere, and I try to mix them up, right, into a cocktail, and then try to come up with something that may be perhaps 0.1% original, but then the other 99% will be just ideas that were expressed by other people, right? So, no, I have not read that book, but I, I, I foresee that I will agree with just because of the title with everything that it says we need to concentrate and it's like yeah you need to put yourself in a state of flow do you remember the old book mm -hmm. flow yep. it's that kind of thing it's like find something that helps you get yourself 
lost with yourself and then yeah. start paying attention to ha what happens here one of the things that i say in how chat five by the way relate related to all this discussion about uh, biases and meditation etc is that once you start reading books about in the into the literature of a uh, biases cognitive biases right like the famous thinking fast and slow and many others i, I mentioned explicitly my favorite book in that literature which is titled uh, mistakes were made but not by me right um, by Carol Tavares, who is a, a great um, cognitive psychologist. She's amazing. Um, anyway, so all this literature, when you read it for the first time, right, you become more adept at detecting biases in other people, right? Mm. So, and that's a problem. You become adept to identifying biases and mistakes in other people. But I say, how just like, you should apply those techniques to yourself first before you apply them to other people. And that's the hardest part. That's the hardest part. If there, I mean, I, I'm recommending too many books perhaps, but there's another one that I really, really love, right? If you want to get into this literature, which is fascinating, I will begin with Carol's book, uh, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. Mm -hmm. And I will continue with another one that is a little bit more technical, but also quite readable, a title, The Enigma of Reasoning. The Enigma of Reasoning. I mentioned these two books in How Just Lie in the, in the last chapter. And then the famous, you know, thinking fast and slow. Although I, I, even if I like that book quite a lot, it's a little bit drier. Mm -hmm. um, uh, these two are much more fun, and and also, it, they are all muscle. There's no, there's no fat in those books. It's like it's all content. If you like underlined books, like I do, you will end up with your book completely <laughs> underlined. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing. It's always good to hear about book recommendations. I love reading. I also mm -hmm. like books in my hand. Mm -hmm. So. Um, question from the render here. Is it advisable to customize a visualization to tell the same story solely based, based on cultural differences? Uh, you know what? That's a, a fantastic question. Fantastic question that I don't have an answer to. Um, <laughs> my guess is that the answer is yes. However, I will also say that there is still, so if any of you is interested in doing research, research in data visualization, cultural differences in the so let me rephrase that is studying the way how culture may affect the reading of visualizations right cultural constraints um mm -hmm. affect visualization or the reading and the or the understanding of the visualization that's an area that is still to be explored that's an area that i would like to see more work to be done into because right now, so far, what I have read in, in academic literature is like small studies about how different colors are perceived, the connotations of colors in different cultures, for example. And that's important research. I'm not, I'm not that trying to dismiss it. It's super important. But I feel that we could go way beyond that. It's like our cultural uh, cultures or do cultures determine or guide preferences in terms of the way that we visualize data or the way that we understand visualizations? I don't know. Do different countries that I'm not familiar with, perhaps visualize things in different ways, or is the language of visualization universal? I know, for example, that cultural constraints and cultural factors um, a, contribute, for example, to how colorful the visualizations of different countries are on average, right? Brazilian visualizations tend to be much more colorful than American visualizations on average. That's my guess. I may be wrong. That's the research. That's just a guess. That's just a yes. little conjecture that I'm making. But I think that if we, we if we take a look, for example, of a some at a sample of, um, let's say, business dashboards from mm -hmm. Brazil, and we compare it to a sample of business that a representative sample of business dashboards produced in the United States, 
and then we analyze the variety of hues, the variety of colors. That's a, an idea for a research project. That's super easy to do if you can gather the sample and then you compare, you will, you will find statistically significant differences. Yeah, that is very interesting. Yeah. And that's a cultural factor. It's a cultural factor. If anybody out there is looking for a project. Mm -hmm. um, actually, there's a question here from Chris Sharon on the project. Do you have any suggestions for a data visualization project that a beginner could start with getting comfortable with data? I know it's not exactly the project that you were proposing, but do you have any ideas of where? This is different because this is for a visualization project, right? Getting a data set and then getting comfortable manipulating data. Mm -hmm. um, begin with something that you really care about and begin local. And I'm going to give you an, an begin small and begin local. Local, because if you begin with something local, you will care more about it. Yep. And, and you will worry about that data because it's data that pertains to your community, right? So you begin with that. At the beginning of the truthful art of my, my previous book, I have a little example of that. I opened the book with a little data visualization exercise with a very small data set. It was only 400 rows or something like that. So a small data set of school performance in Miami-Dade. I just, I wanted to learn a little bit more about the performance of public schools in the city, in the, in the, in the Miami-Dade County area. I went to the Miami-Dade schools a website, which has a data a section. I downloaded a couple of CSVs that they have of school performance. How many students can read at grade level? How many students can do math at grade level? How many students reach the adequate level in science, et cetera? That's a very neatly organized, super simple data set. And if you read the prologue of how, of, oh, sorry, of tr the truthful art, the previous book, you will see that I extracted a lot of knowledge out of that. Uh, not knowledge, but a lot of insights from the from that. I started exploring the data through visualization, I, and I discovered a lot of very intriguing things. And I did that through I, I I I did that through you know a few lines of R code. Although I could have done that with Tableau uh, very easily or, or Power no. BI. Um, if you don't know any software tools, you could probably have used Excel if it's simple. Yeah, exactly. You could do it with Excel. I mean, what I did in the truthful art can be done with Excel because I just did a, did a bunch of scatter plots and yeah. I started inserting, you know, inserting more lines, etc., to, to see the directionality of data, bar graphs, histograms to see distributions. All those things can be done in Excel. So yeah. even you know, with a spreadsheet program, that operation can be done. So anything that you care about, and anything that is local or both, ideally. Mm -hmm. Yep, I absolutely agree. That's the a very similar advice that I give people when they're asking how to get started with data visualization is choose a data set that you're actually interested in finding out what is the outcome mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. building the chart. And then I go a little step further where I say present it on either social media or show it to your friends, your colleagues, or to people who actually observe how people read it, whether people understand it. Yeah, that's very good advice. It's similar to what I tell my students, right? It's like when when they come to my classes, sometimes I guess that some students are a little bit shocked by the advice that I give them because one of the things that I tell them is copy someone. So yeah. copy, yeah, copy someone. It's like get you know try to find role models, you know, people whose graphics you you really like. And try to emulate them. Try to emulate their style, the way that they are short things, that the way that they organize things, their color palettes, because that's a great foundation. That gives you some foundation to later develop your own style of doing things. And the way that I that I explain this to people is that how do you think that Picasso learned to paint out of the blue, just because he was just born with a natural talent? Well, yeah, probably. He 
probably he learned with a natural talent. But if you take a look at the earliest paintings of Picasso, he was plagiarizing. He was copying other people. He was copying other paintings. Well, that's the way that we learn. We are, we human beings are, the, the animal species that we are, we learn by copying other people, we, and then we learn by practicing. We don't learn by, by studying alone. Yeah. We need to put that study in practice right away and see how other people transform the theoretical knowledge that you may find in books into practical operations. And that's what you need to put through your through the, your practice of the craft. Yeah, the, the one other thing I wanted to say here is there's a site called Makeover Monday. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, that's an example that I usually put in classes, like yeah. go to Makeover Monday and take a look at the before and the afters. That's extremely yeah. educational, extremely and, educational. Yeah, so for those who are not familiar with it, it's basically a site that puts out a, a chart with the underlying data and allows you to make over the chart, make it better. And the coolest part here is if you look for the hashtag on Twitter, or I think LinkedIn as well, and you look for Makeover Monday, you could see everybody's take on that data and then take a look And then there are discussions, you know, heated discussions about the best ways of doing this and that. Decisions in visualization, and this is something that, I'm, it's an idea that is fresh in my mind because it's going to, I've been talking about it in the latest talks and it's going to probably end up in the, in the book. For many years, visualization was taught as a series of rules. Do these, don't do these. Do these, don't do that. Uh, don't use pie charts. Don't use whatever, right? It's like, those are rules. There's really no rules in visualization. There, are, there is a grammar and a simple system, right? But every visualization is unique. The process of designing a visualization is a dialogue, a dialogue with yourself and a dialogue with other people in order to reach some sort of conclusion, right? To reach some sort of like ending point. It's a process, right? Uh, Andy Kirk uh, likes to talk about the visualization process. Andy has a book titled Data Visualization. His, his book is amazing, right? He talks about a process. The visualization is not just getting the data, going to Excel and select the chart. That's yeah. not a process. Uh, you need to follow that process. And that process is a dialogue, right? A reasoning process, right? That's why in my next book, I will focus so much on the creating that sort of like reasoning framework, how to make decisions through that process or, or during that process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, we've got some comments and questions here. Yeah. <laughs> Second. Even companies favor some color like blue. <laughs> well, I guess that everybody has, has their own preferences, right? Um, Let me see, I'm going to start, uh, I'm going to read the, um, oh, uh, Mahesh is asking whether I thought about writing a cognitive psychology book. There are many already that, I, I, so um, it, again, the books that I mentioned before, uh, Carol's book, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, that's a great introduction to cognitive psychology. There are plenty of them that, that are really, really good. I don't think that I could contribute in any meaningful way um, to that literature. I'm just an amateur who likes to, read about these issues and then try to steal ideas and see how they may apply to the world of data visualization, crediting the authors of the ideas, of course. Um, Sorry, I totally choked on my coffee. <clears throat> That's why you don't drink No coffee. problem, are you okay? Yes. <laughs> okay, I was just reading through the, um, through the <laughs> comments I just replied. Um, oh, Narendra is making a very interesting point. Uh, he said, box plots, box plots are very common in Japan, but not so in the Western world. That, that's super interesting. I didn't know that. I love box plots uh, myself. 
and it's interesting that are more common in Japan than in the country. But that's another thing. Are are graphic forms that are more commonly used in some countries, but not in other countries? Are there like, uh, I mean, a few years ago, I participated in a in a in a celebration uh, that was pushed uh, that was put together by a congressman, uh, Mike Takano, I think that it was. Um, it was the chart day. So Congress actually declared a chart day three day, three years ago. And perhaps, perhaps there is a national chart for every country. Every country may have its own national chart or something, right? Perhaps oh. Japan is the country of the box plot. Who knows, right? So, okay. Sorry about that. That was... No problem. <laughs> I'm glad uh, that you're okay. Talk about here is basically innovations that you foresee in the data visualization space or you know, the story, data storytelling or narratives. Mm. Uh, as, as I said before, I'm not that interested in innovations. I think that, that before we can, we can, all right, so let, again, I'm going to back up. I think that innovations are great. So if you work in developing, creating new tools, new programming languages, thinking about how new technologies can be applied to visualization, right? The other day I was reading about the automation of visualization and creating visualizations that are generated by a computer, which is something that tools such as Power BI already do, right? You can get you can get quick insights through the software, and the software will generate graphics for you based on decisions that I guess are driven by machine learning algorithms that analyze the data for you. Or you want to think about VR or you know virtual reality, whatever you want to get into those. Things, that's absolutely amazing, and you should absolutely do it. Uh, the other day, I read an article about. Um, about data visualization becoming more data simulation, right? Instead mm -hmm. of just designing a visualization that presents data, uh, we can let people play with the data and see different scenarios of what may happen. That's so fantastic, and we should we should all invest in that. But I don't think that that's what I can I can contribute to the most. I'm not particularly innovative person, and I, I don't care that much about pushing the field even forward in terms of the new flashy thing, right? I'm, again, I'm not trying to be dismissive here. Yeah. Again, I think that innovations are incredibly important, but I'm much more important on the other kind of innovation, which is not to look forward, but to look backward. Mm. Who is behind us, right? Who is taking advantage of the current visualization tools that we have? It's a very tiny minority of people, right? I want everybody. I want everybody to be able to design a scatter plot and to read a scatter plot. I want everybody to be able to design a coral cliff map. I want everybody to enjoy the beauty of a box plot, for instance, right? It's like, I want everybody because it's so great. I mean, the visualizations kind of really help us understand the world better if we pair them with other channels, with other ways of communication, such as words, right? So if we all learn how to speak and how to write, why shouldn't we all learn how to map or how to chart correctly, right? The reason why we not do that, by the way, is that the Western tradition, at least, the, the Western intellectual tradition mm -hmm. puts visuals in a lower, at a lower uh, level than words, right? We tend to believe that we think in words, that there's an internal written or spoken language in our brains. And that's not true. Well, it's partially true, but it's only partially true. We think in pictures and we think in diagrams and we think spatially and we think also verbally. We think in, we think in many different ways. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, it's not that some of us think one way and another way, and other people think in a different way. The idea of different intelligences mm -hmm. that has been sort of like refuted. Everybody's capable 
What we can favor is one mode of thinking other than other. We can be a little bit better thinking verbally than thinking visually, but we all think visually, we all think spatially, and we all think verbally. So why don't we teach all that? Why don't we reinforce all that? We will become more powerful human beings, more intelligent human beings if we do that. If we start paying the attention that it deserves to visual spatial, visual spatial thinking. So where do you think that begins? Does it begin in elementary school? Where we I, have, I have no idea. I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you, she, you don't have a solution. That's uh, again, I never have solutions to anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have many thoughts, though. And one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm getting involved in right now is educational efforts. So um, one of my many crazily long titles at the university is direction of director of visualization at the Institute for Data Science and Computing, which sounds very impressive, but it's actually not that impressive. I'm just the guy who teaches how to do visualizations. And one of the things that I thought is that perhaps, you know, I might be able to help middle schools and high schools to teach statistics better mm -hmm. by developing modules or I don't know exactly what I need to teach to te talk to teachers first to see whether they are already doing this, right? Using visualization as a gate, gateway drug into statistics. I mean, if you, this again, this is not particularly original. I got the inspiration from reading um, R for Data Science, uh, the book by Hadley Wickham. I would strongly recommend that book. It's freely available online, R for Data Science. So it's a book about data science, right? And it's a book about R, the R programming language. But what is the first chapter about? the cool stuff. It's about the visualizations. The first thing that you do is not to get into formulas or code, it's to create cool graphics. Yeah. And then reading those cool graphics and say, oh, oh, and now I see it, right? Mm -hmm. So and I, I got that idea by merging that with my own experience, which is, I always loved maths. I'm, I'm, even if I am I'm a person who, when, when I was in high school, I took sort of like the, what we call in Europe, the letters pathway. So I, I studied more philosophy, history, etc. I never abandoned math. I've always loved math. But what I didn't like about math was formulas. I hate formulas. And I hate the abstraction of mathematical notation. Although I know that it's useful, we should use it, and I learn it, etc., etc. But I'm a spatial thinker. When yeah. you talk to me about a distribution, right? I cannot imagine the distribution if you only tell me the statistics that define the distribution. I need to draw it. Yeah. Once I draw it, I see it. And I believe that many people are like me. It's like once you explain these concepts visually, right? You get them. There's a wonderful book recently uh, a titled a, a, uh, Math with Bad Drawings. Okay. Check that out, Math with Bad Drawings. Okay. Um, that author has another book recently focusing much more on calculus, mm -hmm. but it's, it's math with bad drawings. So it's explaining math through stick figures and things like that. It's super funny, very easy to read. It's, a, it's joyful. It's an amazing, amazing book. And the recent book about calculus, I haven't read it yet, but I guess that it will be equally, equally good. Um, before we go on, did you need to drop or did you have a few more minutes? Yes, I, I just welcome the opportunity to not having more Zoom meetings so we can continue. Okay, great. Thank you. So, um, Anne Camry, hey, Anne. She says using visual, data visualization. Hey, I know, Anne. Hey, Anne. <laughs> it's a small world. Yeah, it's a small world. It's really a small world. Sorry if I sound a little bit sleepy. 
Yeah, no, meeting all this. Yeah, yeah, gateway, gateway drug. I absolutely believe that that is true. I mean, take a look at how how much children enjoy visuals and enjoy maps and enjoy enjoy charts, right? It's like, and, and how how much emphasis we put into teaching children, very young children, to draw. But then once they get to the statistics and math classes, classes, okay. we take it away. Why? Why do we do that? It's That's like we're doing it. It's like why don't we take advantage of that? Right? It's like I don't know. Again, it, I may be, I may not say, I may not be saying anything particularly new. Perhaps uh, there are educators who are already working in this area, and that's one of the things that I want to explore in the future through my role at the institute. Actually, I have a meeting about this tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> talking about all these ideas, I would need to talk to you know middle school teachers, high school teachers to see what whether these kinds of initiatives exist. It's like it's like I mean, for one 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 example that I was I was mentioned someone mentioned to me a while ago is Khan Academy, right? Khan Academy uses visuals to sort of explain mathematical mathematical con uh, concepts, but mm -hmm. I want to go beyond that. I don't want children to take a look at a video in which someone is drawing something. I want them to create the graphic. It's like I want them to create the visualization and then extract meaning from that visualization and then use topics that they really care about. I mentioned this before to the, in the answer to one of the questions, choose topics that you care about. So the examples that are usually used to teach statistics are incredibly boring. Even the, 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 when you learn R, you always use that damn empty cars data yes. set. Who cares about that? Or the diamonds thing? Who cares about that, right? It's like so boring. Unless you are very into diamonds, I guess that it wouldn't be boring, but it's very boring for me. So, you know, perhaps creating a library of data sets that um, statistics educators can use with middle schoolers. Uh, yeah. you know the you know the the pudding polygraph, the pudding I'm going to write. So the pudding is pudding cool, pudding dot cool. That's a website. So the pudding is a collective of visualization designers who create visualizations about the most varied topics that you can think about. And they are absolutely amazing. The pudding belongs to an, a, a, a data visualization firm called a Polygraph, right? Okay. Uh, so it's pudding.cool. And then Polygraph is polygraph.cool. Well, anyway, one of the most popular stories, data-driven stories that they ever published is a data-driven exploration of the lyrics of hip hop. So they got a huge data set of hip hop lyrics and they analyze the variety of, there you go, that's the pudding. It's probably not going to be on the front pages because it's from two or three years ago. Mm. So if you Google a pudding hip hop lyrics, you will probably find it. So it's a data-driven exploration of hip hop lyrics. And the, the great thing about it is that they most of the time they let you download the data sets that they use for these projects. So I say, okay. why don't we build that class exercise? about yeah. hip hop lyrics so we can teach we can show students the exercise that i had in mind as an experiment was to say you know here you have all these very very popular hip hop lyrics here you have several magnets with their faces and their names now here's a here's a line if one person is over here it means that that person's vocabulary is very small if that person is very is here it means that that person's vocabulary is very large right now position the magnets according to what you believe that the the, what, what, how varied the vocabulary of these artists are, right? And so have the children sort of like create a dot plot, right? A, a strip plot with the faces of the other hip hop people. And then 
give them the data set and teach them how to use you know any any simple tool uh, tableau will work power bi will work just have them drop a drag and drop the data set into the tool and let yeah. the tool create the, the dot plot for them and they can compare the dot plot that the computer generates to the dot plot that they manually created and they probably get they, they will probably get things wrong and that that will create surprise and surprise creates interest Yes. So how, how that type of example is what I'm, I thought about, you know, creating data sets about Marvel movies, right? It's how they yeah. did at the box office. I don't know. I mean, examples like that, that are fun. And perhaps, I mean, perhaps I'm old and that will not be fun for a 15-year-old. But, you know, ask children, what do you care about, right? And then try to come up with data sets that relate to the reality. And this is, again, I'm not talking about anything particularly original. Is that, this is my experience when I was taught math. Empty cars was the kind of example that was used, and I couldn't care less. I had no interest in that kind of thing. It, was, it had not, it had not relationship to my reality at all. So we need to use data sets that relate to re the reality of people that we want to teach. And it's actually effective at an even younger age. I remember I came to my um, my daughter's career day, and we were talking about data science. And at that time, she was. I believe in pre-K, yes, so four-year-olds, picture 24-year-olds, and we talked about data visualization and mm -hmm. actually created a bar chart. They created a bar chart on this big board and it was all made up of Skittles. So mm -hmm. basically I, I let each child- Yeah, yeah, Skittles, yeah, objects, Legos, yeah, yeah, I don't know, candy, and they can yeah. eat the candy after that, I don't know, yeah. They had to choose one Skittle and hold it, right? So then we could do a tally of how many red Skittles, yellow and green. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Terrible idea. Four-year-olds and Skittles, they popped it right hey, in there. Yeah. <laughs> then you need an x-ray to see how many red Skittles are in their stomachs. <laughs> exactly. But you know, to my surprise, they all knew exactly what, what I'm talking about. They all got up and actually drew the bars and knew how to measure it. And I was I was just blown away. I'm like, they're four. Mm -hmm. I did School yeah, nine, so. I think that Cara. I'm, I'm looking. I'm reading at the reading the the comments right now, and I think that Cara makes a very good point. She, she says in Western education, this may be universally. I don't know, but certainly Western education, this is true. We yes. have to struggle with a subject to be rigorous with that, right? Well, we do. We need to, as I said before, I train myself to read deeply. I'm very disciplined with reading. I try to be as rigorous as possible, but sometimes. When when someone says, oh, I'm trying to be rigorous, I don't care about all this visual stuff, this is all a distraction, blah, blah, blah. That person is using alleged rigor as mm -hmm. a boundary or a, or, a, or a wall to separate himself or herself from the rest of the world. You will never achieve the position that I have. I'm in my ivory tower. I'm so high, right? I'm trying to distinguish myself, right? I don't believe in that kind of philosophy. I think that rigor doesn't really contradict accessibility or, or making things understandable. You can be rigorous and understandable. You can be both. And there's, yeah. you don't, you don't need, you, oh, you don't, I mean, sometimes you need to sacrifice a little bit of granularity, obviously, to tell a clear message, but there's always a threshold, right? It's like, remember the old saying attributed commonly to Einstein, right? I don't know if this is, he actually said this, but this, this, there, there is this saying, uh, Einstein apparently was talking about scientific theories. And he said, everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. Yes. Right? That's the threshold, right? It's like, you can make things simple, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there's another thing that he used to say, and I believe that this is an actual quote. If you can understand something clearly, it's because you understand it. 
if you cannot explain it clearly, it's because you don't understand it. Yes. I don't know if it was Einstein or Feynman who said this, probably both, or, or, or Carl Sagan. One of the three said something like that. Mm -hmm. You can only understand something well when yes. you have to teach it clearly. Yes. And actually, that's one of the reasons teaching something is one of the best ways to learn something, because yes. you need to force yourself to understand it rigorously and systematically, right? I became a better visualization designer when I became a professor of visualization mm. because I needed to sort of like understand what I was doing in a rational way in order to explain it to others in a rigorous manner, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Alberto, I know we've gone a lot over our planned time or 45 minutes. So I, mm -hmm. I wanna just, you know, really thank you for taking the time and, and chat with me here. And Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Let's do it again. Yes, absolutely. Um, before you go, can you just tell people where they can go to learn more about the work you're doing or where can they go to actually get the books? I know I got mine on Amazon, but that's Yeah, I mean, anywhere. Try, try to not buy from Amazon if you can. Try to buy from your independent bookstore, your local bookstore. Support your local bookstores. Um, uh, I, I mean, yeah. I, I order plenty of stuff from Amazon. Don't get me wrong. But whenever I need to order physical books, I try to... I have started getting them systematically from my local bookstores. Um, so, you know, go to, um, what's the name of the website in which you can access your local bookstores? Um, ah, ah, sorry. Let's find it because I actually don't know. Indiebound, Indiebound, Indiebound.org. Sorry. Yeah, that's, that's the place. Indiebound.org. Okay. That's where you can access local bookstores. So get your books from there. So that's where you can find my books. And if you get them from Amazon, that's fine. Or yes. Barnes & Noble. Um, I have a hierarchy actually. First local bookstores, then Barnes and Noble, then Amazon. That's the that's sort of like the order. Hierarchy of Amazon on top. It should be the other way. Around. Well, I, should, I I wrote I did that this way just because the orientation of my camera is vertical and I have enough space to do it horizontally. So I yes. have a space con space constraint from my data visualization. But yeah, it will be first my my bookstore, then my then Barnes and Noble, then Amazon. Anyway, so you can get them there. To yes. find me, I mean, you can find me on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and. I was on Facebook, although I don't post that much on Facebook. I don't like Facebook that much. I'm not going to get into that, but I don't like Facebook. Uh, so mainly Twitter. And then, you know, my websites, I have a corporate website, uh, which is my name, albertocairo.com. And then I have a weblog, uh, which is the title of my first book, uh, uh, The Functional Art, The Functional Art, thefunctionalart.com. Mm -hmm. That will be my, uh, my weblog. I have not... I publish a lot of blogs lately, but yeah, I still I still keep it. Well, because you're writing books, can imagine you have blogs or or reading about fifth century Christianity. There you go. <laughs> all right, well, Alberto, again, thank you so much for getting on the session and sharing all of your great insights. I actually personally learned a lot, and I love 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 the the idea of using a narrative to build a dashboard. Um, mm -hmm. that paragraph first, so that's my biggest takeaway. Um, thank you again for your time. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Good to see you all. Bye-bye.